0: Let's turn in our Bibles this morning to Judges chapter 3, <clears throat> book of Judges chapter 3, reading at verse 7. Let's hear the word of God. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Ashtoreth. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of Kashan rishathaim Rish by the way, this is four times in this reading that I've got to say this, the king of Mesopotamia. And the people of Israel served Kushan rishathaim eight years. But when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel who saved them, Othniel, the son of Kenes, Caleb's younger brother. The spirit of the Lord was upon him, and he judged Israel. He went out to war, and the Lord gave Cushan Hathaim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand, and his hand prevailed over Cushan Hathaim. So the land had rest 40 years. Then Othnael, the son of Kenes, died. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. I want to introduce you to three characters that appear in this chapter, this section of the chapter. Three friends that you should know. Othnael, Ehud, and Shamgar. Three men, among others, that give us the the title of this entire book, the book of Judges. These are the first three Judges to which we're introduced in this book. Now, we've already noticed that the book of Judges has a particular order uh, and uh, and form, shape. It has two introductions, which we've already studied together. It has two conclusions. There are twelve Judges. Six major judges, six minor judges. What does it take to be a minor judge? Like the minor prophets, just that there's not as much said about you as there, are, there is about the major ones, that's all. Nothing spiritual difference or anything. And there is also one anti-judge, a man called Abimelech. Here in chapter 3, we meet in quick order the first two major judges and the first so-called minor judge. Well, I was thinking about this right at the beginning of the week, and you'll see how it changed over the week. But as I was thinking about this, somehow the, uh, the music of Leonard Cohen came to mind. And I was thinking of his Hallelujah. Some of you will know that, a generational thing. Uh, the words, a minor chord, a major lift came to mind. And I was thinking, well, you know, in this passage, there are two major chords and one minor gift. I thought it it kind of rhymed with Cohen. Anyway, it obviously didn't have the impression, make the impression it was meant to do. And anyway, by the middle of the week, it abandoned doing all three of them. So what I've just done is actually irrelevant to this morning. But you needed to know where I was coming from. But everything in this chapter, uh, then, if we had to read on, everything in this chapter is there because of the words of chapter 2, verse 16. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them, that is, saved Israel, out of the hand of those who plundered them. It's these first three men, in a sense, who set the standard and establish the pattern for each of the following judges in the book. The big lesson of this chapter for us is that God acts as he wills and he chooses those whom he uses. He will act as and with and how he decides. Even when we don't understand what he's doing. Even when from an observer's point of view we don't think God's actually being godlike. There's a verse of a hymn by William Cooper That captures this. Blind unbelief is sure to err. In other words, we're going to get it wrong if we just look from a position of unbelief at what God is doing. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter. And he can make it plain. He can make it plain. This means that sometimes from our point of view, God may act unpredictably from our human point of view. While remaining, pardonly, according to the Bible, remaining the God of order, the God who is immutable, that is unchanging, and faithful in all His ways. So whenever we come across things about God that we don't quite get our minds around, we're to draw into our our sight, our memory, the words of Isaiah 55, My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways. My ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts, says the Lord. Well, the first of these three men we're going to look at today is Ophniel. He sets the pattern and the pace. Uh, He's... uh, Caleb's nephew, uh, Caleb, you will remember if you remember your Bible school back in the day, you'll remember that there were 12 spies sent to spy in Canaan, 10 were bad, two were good. Well, Caleb is one of the two good ones. In the book of Numbers, this is what God says about Caleb. But my servant Caleb, because he has a different spirit and has followed me fully, I will bring to that land from which he went, and his descendants shall possess it. And when eventually they entered the promised land, it was Caleb who went and captured the city of Hebron, leading his army, winning a great victory at the young age of 85 years of age. So Caleb, Caleb is a key figure in the early chapters of this book. And Caleb's daughter, you remember, emerged right at the very first chapter of the book, the formidable Axa. She is the one who was offered by her father. He offered his daughter, not not, not the best thing to try out, guys. This is not good behavior to follow, but he offered his daughter as an incentive for one of the men to man up and lead the the battle against the city of Debir. Othniel was the one who took the test and won the girl. And Caleb saw in Othniel a kindred spirit, a man for the hour. As sometimes we say, cometh the man, cometh the hour, cometh the man or the woman, in the case of the book of Judges. Well, as we come to the passage, let's note that it comes in three movements. In the first movement, we're introduced to the oppressor. The oppressor. When we left Israel last, it was living comfortably in the land of Canaan. It was blending in among the people there. And we heard the dreadful conclusion of that process back in chapter 6 of verse uh, verse 6 of chapter 2, they served other gods. He's talking about Israel, the people of God. They served other gods. In other words, they were systematically surrendering their identity as God's people in order to fit in with Canaanite society. That story has been repeated time and time again in the 19th century. Most of Europe and some of American universities, Christian universities here, capitulated to the Enlightenment project which despised most medieval material as being... In the dark, there there were no dark ages until the Enlightenment called them dark ages so you wouldn't read the stuff that was produced then. Wonderfully today, there has been an absolute resurgence of interest in the medieval period, especially theologically and historically. But uh, they bought bought into the new philosophers, no longer Plato and Aristotle, but uh, Hegel and Kant. And soon emerging from those into the 20th century, we have, uh, we have forces uh, that uh, d- adopt the principles of the 19th century in deconstructing many of the doctrines and truths that Christians have believed. And the outcome is that you can go to a country like Scotland, my, my, where I was born and brought up. Scotland used to be called the land of the book. We sang one of Scotland's great hymns at the very beginning of the service, Oh God, our help in ages past. Well, it comes out of the Bible, so it was God's before it was Scotland's. But frankly, there are periods where it's hard to distinguish the one from the other. But, 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 but now you go to Scotland and you will see many of the remarkable churches that were built during the period of, of, uh, of the church's growth all over Scotland. And now you find these beautiful church buildings, luxury flats, warehouses, and nightclubs. In fact, most of the nightclubs in Glasgow are former churches. The glory has departed. Even in the 20th century, theologians peddled the idea that God is dead. There was the introduction of some Marxist and fascist ideas uh, in... baptizing Marxist and fascist ideas around about the 40s or the 30s and 40s of the 20th century designed to neuter Christians and Christianity. And what these groups failed to do, secularism has done with far greater success. The church has imitated the culture it has muted that which is offensive to the culture our culture despises in particular, and it has adopted the standards of this age and here's the, Here is the heart of what's happening today in this world today, wherever you go, not just in America it's no longer we, we no longer have the nation states in their own little uh, uh, entity of their, their own. We, we live in a global world in which everything is fl- floating freely throughout the world. But today what it is, we call evil good and we call good evil. And when we do that, we break the law of God. And that's what precipitates the words that we read at the beginning of this section. They did evil in the sight of of God. Now, now understand that as we read this, we're not thinking about people outside the church. We're not thinking about what the world is doing, what they're doing in Hollywood, what they're doing in Washington DC, or what they're doing in London or Beijing or wherever. This is this is the church. Israel is the church of that period. It's the place and people of God, and it's this people who have lost. Their knowledge of God, and so what we find is that God hands over His own people. It says in verse seven, they forgot the Lord their God, but God hadn't forgotten them. He hands over His people to this enemy for eight years. He sold them into the hands of Cushion. I won't say his title now every time. They hold, they they sold them into his hands, and the people of Israel served Cushion for eight years. In other words, their spiritual amnesia led to spiritual servitude. Spiritual servitude to whom? To this man, Kushan. And his surname, or his next name, or title rather, Rishathaim, means doubly wicked. Kushan of double wickedness is really the, the description. In other words, he represents... The epitome of evil. And he's first in the list of these judges in order to introduce us to a little thought that's going on beneath the surface here. Because this man, being the epitome of evil, represents the evil one. The supreme arch villain in the whole book of Judges is this man. And he represents the supreme arch villain in all the stories of human history. You can see this in the way this is underlined and emphasized. It's just repeated again and again. In verse two 8, there are two mentions of the full name of this guy. Verse 10, the full name of this guy. You're meant to notice this. This ridiculous name is not just there to trip Liam up trying to pronounce it, (laughs) though frankly it was a bit of a nightmare. Uh, But and that's why I'm not repeating it again in this sermon, I promise. But it's there for you to pay attention to. This is an extremely wicked person. He is the kind of living embodiment of the devil, if you if you will. And where the evil, the Christian individual where the Christian church compromises with sin, then God may do to the individual or to the church what he does here. He hands them over to the evil one. He hands them over to this evil force. You see, when people at large in society suppress the natural knowledge of God that they're born with in their conscience and in nature, and they deny God then what they do is they place themselves into the arms of the evil one. That's what John says in 1 John. The whole world is in the sway of the evil one. And to a church that compromises with false teaching, Jesus promises, well, I'm going to come quickly and I'm going to fight against those false teachers with the sword of my mouth, that is, with my word. Satan is the God of this age. He delights to maintain his grip on unbelievers. And Cushan kept Israel in his group, his grip. Satan, the evil one, delights to enslave hearts and minds. So here we have God then handing over his own people, his sinning people, to the evil one, to be held captive by him to do the evil one's will in the world. You see, the service of God is freedom. True freedom. The service of God is true freedom. The service of sin is bondage. And if you want to follow a foreign God and serve it, be prepared to be tyrannized by it. Because your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion looking for anyone he can devour. Uh, Richard Rogers, one of the reformers, puts it like this. Sometimes God delivers us as individuals, as churches, over, he delivers us over that he might bring us to an end of ourselves. Hold that in mind. That's God disciplines his people. He disciplines the church. He disciplines you and me personally. In order that we might be brought to an end of ourselves. Our self-reliance, our self-confidence, and so on. So there's the oppressor. Number two, we have the deliverer. The people of Israel cried out to the Lord. Sometimes we try to deal with sin in our own strength. We get all kinds of procedures. We we perhaps go to a counselor for help and so on. And we try strategies to deal with sin. And we're surprised that we cannot overcome it. Well, we cannot overcome it in our own strength. But you know, it's quite simple. We can apply to God for help. We can apply to God for help in order to deal with sin. There are things you and I just cannot do by our own nature. There are some things that we cannot do in our own strength. When we feel the heavy hand of God upon us and when other humans fail us round about us, we must resort to God. You see, the problem is with other people around us, sometimes we want to lean on them rather than on God. And there's a sense which when God's disciplining us, whether as individuals or a church, he wants us to turn to him. And so that's what we find. We find the action of the whole believing community now calling on the name of the Lord. I want to make this clear to you today. There is no wickedness in you, no wickedness in you that is beyond the power, the help, and strength of God's mercy. John Calvin puts it like this For even if we are afflicted by God because of our sins, and our conscience is is rendered terrified, so terrified that it does not dare to lift its face to the heavens and call on God, fearing that its prayers and groans and sighs will not be welcomed by an angry God. These examples in this book of Judges, these examples are meant to rouse your conscience again and to strengthen your confidence again in the God who will hear from heaven when you cry out to him. Isn't that a great principle? These verses teach us that the Lord accepts and hears the cries and the groans of the prayers of his people, of his sinful people. Even if those sins are gross and immense sins, These Israelites called on the name of the Lord who had given promises to Abraham and they are coming to God on the basis of those promises. In fact, in one translation, an old translation, the word redeemer is even in this text. And of course, the promises that were made to Abraham was of a redeemer, someone who would come and liberate them. Liberate them from bondage. The bondage of sin. Jesus comes as the liberator. He comes to liberate us from the bondage of sin. And so when you as an individual believer or we as a church call upon the name of God for Jesus' sake, we have access to God. You have access to God. You have access to the throne of grace. And from the throne of grace, you, you, you may receive mercy from God above. Well, you know, these people didn't cry in repentance. Dale Ralph Davis says there's no cry for repentance here. They cried out of their misery. They were beyond repentance. They cried out of their misery to God. And he heard them. He heard them. And he sent a Savior, a Deliverer, God's gift. The Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel to save them. Now you see, God is not giving quid pro quo here. He simply couldn't let their sufferings go on anymore. He's, he's looking at them and He's seeing them suffer. He's caused the sufferings. He's handed them over to the sufferings. But as He, as he hears their cries and their misery, He doesn't leave them there. This is the way in which he disciplines us. It's the way in which he disciplines his church. God's salvation is an act of sheer grace. This is how God responds to the misery of his people when we cry out for help. And this is what happens when you cry out for help, wherever you are, crying out for help from God. He hears from heaven and he shows mercy. And he sends a man He sends this man, Othniel, the son of Kez, 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 Caleb's younger brother. And he becomes a prototype of the Savior. Let me tell you something about this man. His name, Othniel, El is the word for God, the name for God. His name means Lion of God. Lion of God. He comes from a particular tribe. Do you know what tribe he comes from? The tribe of Judah. Here's the lion from the tribe of Judah who has come to take on the evil one, Cushan the doubly wicked, who's holding Israel, the people of God, in captive captivity, and he's going to overpower the evil one and save his people. Is there anything about that that's familiar to you? We know of another greater leader than, by far than Othniel, He is described specifically as the lion of the tribe of Judah. And he comes to save his people from their sins. This leader is the supreme savior of God's elect. So as we read the story of Othniel, him and the other leaders in this book... Our types and images of our highest leader, our Savior Jesus. He comes to liberate and defend us. Not just against flesh and blood, that is other people and other forces and tyrannical enemies. But even from sins and ideologies and uh, uh, all aided and abetted by the powers of darkness. The rulers and authorities of this present age. He takes that on. He takes on sin and the law and death and hell. And he brings us life and liberty and eternal happiness. This deliverer points us to our deliverer. And then thirdly, we have the conqueror. This is what we're told. The spirit of the Lord was upon him. And he judged Israel. Othniel didn't do this because he had a particularly effective bodybuilding regimen, that he was again a kind of super-duper muscle-bound uh, man with a lot of strength. We're going to read about a big man in the next story, and we'll, we'll leave that till then. Actually, every one of these, every one of these judges in the book of Judges is able to save Israel only by the power of the Holy Spirit. All the images we have of them as being, you know, macho type guys, only by the power of the Holy Spirit. You see, even we, even you, cannot do all things on your own. We can do all things, however, through Christ who strengthens us so, Othniel, the, uh, the Redeemer, the Deliverer, by the power of the Spirit, gives the land rest for 40 years. That's a long period. whole generation. They had rest from their enemies. Our Savior gives us the saints everlasting rest. And those people that God sometimes sends to the church as uh, leaders in times of trouble, sometimes they get us A period where the church is able to thrive and grow and be blessed by God and we can pray for that. Now there is one thing that I need to pause for here to address. Peter Martyr Vermigli in his Book on Judges raises this question whether God is the cause of sin. Now that question is raised, isn't it, in the text. It says the Lord sold the Israelites to the king of Mesopotamia. And on the surface, it seems that the Lord helps this wicked man to satisfy his tyrannical ambitions and achieve global global power, or at least local power over the nations round about him. This doubly evil man, you see, does not act by just cause and he has no legal title when he takes over Israel and the people. Now, what answer would you give to that? Very often the facile answer is just to say, well, God permitted it. But as Vermigli points out, we often find that Scripture is far bolder than we are. God has said, to deliver, to command, to harden. He brings tragic events, or he allows tragic events to happen, and he works, he sends those events by permitting people to do it. Jesus said the sparrow doesn't fall to the ground without your father, that is, without your father's will. That teaches us or suggests that without the will and counsel of God, nothing, be it ever so small, can come to be. We see this illustrated in Isaiah. In Isaiah 5, much later on in Israel's history, she has sinned again and God intervenes. And he promises that he will act in justice to judge his rebellious people. He's going to exile them from their land. He's going to whistle to the nations and the nations will come and do his bidding. They'll come and do what they want to do, but they'll do it by his bidding. That's chapter 5. You turn over to chapter 10 and you read that when the Lord finishes all the work against Mount Zion, that is against his people, against Jerusalem, he will say, I will punish the king of Assyria. The one who came and did the job on his behalf. He will punish him for the arrogant acts and proud look in his eyes. Why? Why? Because this chappie is saying to himself, I have done this by my own strength and wisdom, for I am clever. I abolished the borders of nations and plundered their treasures. He is boasting about doing what he's only been permitted or directed to do by God as a means of dis- disciplining God's own church. as we saw last time, it's only if you love someone that you dare to discipline them. It's only if you love someone that you're prepared to take the hard action. Far easier to let things go than to act responsibly. So, does God cause evil? God is a pure than to behold evil. Human beings, on the other hand, devise all kinds of wickedness. When people are moved and stirred up to act wickedly, is that God's doing? No. Are people delivered by God into sin as if they were pure and innocent? Well, none of us is pure or innocent. No, people drive themselves into sin, delight in it, are without excuse in their sin. But sometimes God will use that. He'll use the ambitions of some emperor. He will use the predations of some character. He will use these things as a way of disciplining his own people. He uses the schemes of people against them. And then in Christ, he takes the penalty of sin by his obedience. He he acts on behalf of us and is obedient in our place so that we get his righteousness. In his death, he pays the sacrifice for our sin that brings us to God. Humans choose to fall into sin. Humans vote daily to remain there. And so God sometimes withdraws his gifts and his graces from the church so that we get what we want. We get what we want. We get the popularity, the acceptance. We, we get admitted into the society of our cultured despisers. That's what happened at the end of the 19th century. But then God sends a Savior. And from our perspective, the Savior has come. He has come to rescue us from ourselves. He has come that we might find rest for our souls. He has come in answer to your cries for help out of your misery he has come well the real rest that israel enjoyed was a finite rest and you know in times in the life of the church god raises up characters who play their little part on the stage as it were by which god calls his people back to himself in the 30s and 40s in scotland up the east coast of scotland there were the, the towns and villages along the coast were and had been for generations cold, indifferent, hard places for the gospel. Church planting, impossible. Church building, building up the people, impossible. Any attempts to do things in the open air down by the shore to reach people, impossible. And God took a man, it's an ordinary fisherman. No education as such. And he saved this man. His name was Jock Troop. Uh, my, his books, by the way, were the basis for, for my own library of books. Jock Troop was converted in the thirties. And From his conversion, every time the fishing boat came in to one of those little villages, as they would go out, they would do their catch, they would come back into another village and sell the catch. And they would go down the coast. Every time they came into the villages, he would preach. He would go into the open air at the cross in the middle of the town or village. He would preach the gospel. Thousands of people would be saved from all walks of life. God gave this man who had no education, He gave this man an amazing gift to absorb truth. The the guy became an absolute theologian. It was unbelievable. But there was right down that coast, and to this day, that coast is receptive. One of the few places that is receptive to the gospel. Except for one village near Aberdeen, Stonehaven. They've tried and they've tried and they've tried and they've tried and they've tried to, and have tried to get things really going at Stonehaven. That was the one village that would not let Jock Troop preach back in the 1930s. And you know, it just hardened our hearts. That kind of thing happens when God is intervening on behalf of His people. And there may be in your day that will happen. Something like that will happen. God will raise up an unusual person out of the blue, and that person will be used by God to turn the tide in a town, in a city, in a region, in a country, in a continent. Be sure that God hears from heaven when we cry to Him. And thank Him that He has already acted fully and finally in Christ for the salvation of His elect. Let's pray. We come to you, Lord, and we thank you that you hear when we cry to you in our misery. And I pray for those who may be in that position today. They would cry to you, come to an end to themselves, cry to you for mercy, and that you would show them mercy, and that you would heal their heart. And we, Lord, as a people here, we cry to you on behalf of this city, this country. We cry to you for mercy. Our miseries perhaps are not as great as they may yet be. But even now, Lord, we ask you to have mercy upon your people here. And hear us, Lord, we ask in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen.